0: You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and as as listeners of this show know, one of the most important political trends in recent years is the ongoing realignment of working-class voters from the Democratic Party, where they were a key cog of the New Deal coalition going back to the 1930s, to the Republican Party. A key element of this working class realignment is labor union members. And as people in our area know, this is a, a an area, a region of the country with a proud heritage of labor unions on both sides of the river. There are a lot of theories on what's behind this realignment and change. But a new book takes a unique look at this and I think gets it right. Uh, this is one of the best books I've read uh, about what's going on in our politics. It's called Rust Belt Union Blues. Why working class voters are turning away from the Democratic Party, and the authors are with me today. I'm really uh, pleased and been looking forward to this. Uh, Thea Scotchpole teaches government and sociology at Harvard University, and Lainey Newman is a Harvard grad as well, and she's currently attending Harvard Law School. Uh, welcome to you both. Well, thank,
1: thank you so much. for
0: Let's just start with, uh, I guess we'll walk our listeners through this. First of all, I, w- I just want to have you talk. This is kind of a unique partnership, what you did. How did you come about uh, starting this type of research uh, and, uh, um, and and embark on this project, which I think is an interesting story in itself? Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, I was a research assistant um, for Professor Scotchpole when I was an undergrad uh, here at Harvard. And um, I got interested in sort of the um, how civic associations have evolved in the U.S. and how that's impacted American politics uh, through reading Professor Scotchpole's work, um, particularly Diminished Democracy. Um, And uh, I wanted to sort of extend that and apply that to um, something that I was familiar with growing up in Pittsburgh um, and having some members of my family uh, as uh, union members of the United Auto Workers. And um, so for my senior thesis, I asked Professor Scotchpole to advise, uh, advise a project on um, trying to understand this realignment in particularly in Western Pennsylvania on um, uh, of union members of steel workers in particular, uh, in, in terms of um, the role of the union and how that's um, evolved uh, in relation to people's political identities uh, over the past 50, 60 years.
2: Yeah, and I was, of course, um, very interested in this project, partly because I grew up in Wyandotte, Michigan, south of Detroit. I went to Michigan State University. I know the Midwest well, and the, and uh, unions were strong when I was growing up. They were a strong force in, in society and politics and in the city that I grew up, which was an industrial city at that time. Um, I had studied all kinds of groups and movements in American politics, but hadn't had a chance to learn, as I knew I would through Lainey's eyes and ears, uh, uh, much more about uh, unions in uh, local communities and national politics. Um, well we have three I should customers. say that I also many several years ago flew into the Quad cities to visit Galena, Illinois with a friend. Oh, so I have a pretty clear picture of what it's like. And I love to travel. I love to travel, especially in the Midwest, which always reminds me of home. So
0: Galena's beautiful. And we got three states covered here, even though Pennsylvania most people don't put in the Midwest. Western Paints, Pennsylvania yeah. is more in common with the Midwest, I think, than the Northeast. So yeah. for yeah. sure. <laughs> well, you know, uh, and I know this is naive in a way, but I want you to kind of uh, run with this. But th- there's probably a thought that, you know, uh, the average voter deciding how to vote, they go home and they study issues and, and then make their decision based on that. That's not really how it works, but I think what it's a central thesis to uh, your work here. To Share with our listeners, kind of going back, how did union members specifically, um, you know, they were part of the New Deal Coalition, as I mentioned, how did they go about their uh, decision making process and voting going back to the heyday back in the 60s and 70s?
1: Yeah, um, so exactly right. We we kind of counter this narrative of, um, I guess, I guess you could call it uh, like policy feedback or that people, you know, go home and, and, and calculate, uh, you know, this is, you know, this issue area versus this issue area, and and weigh the different policy uh, stances of the parties. Um, we really feel uh, and believe that uh, voting is is identity based um, and is influenced by the groups that we're part of, the communities that we're part of, the networks that we're in, um, institutions that we you know attend and and um, and derive meaning from. Um, and so, in the context of unions, um, in in the tw- in the mid twentieth century, I think that what's left out of a lot of the literature is the really robust role that they played in communities and in the social um, sort of backdrop of of um, workers and families lives. Um, And, you know, that they were not only part of uh, the workplace, but but also, you know, at home and in the family, Um, you know, when you went to uh, church service on, on Sundays. Um, you know, there was a labor presence. Um, a lot of the you know, sort of even church leaders had, you know, ties to the labor movement. Um, and, uh, you know, even recreationally people in, you know, enjoying, um, certain softball leagues and, and adjacent things that, you know, were sponsored by the union, um, children's events that were sponsored by the union, like soapbox derbies or like holiday parties. Um, And so this sort of all encompassing role that the union played, the local unions played um, in a lot of regions informed, uh, you know, people's people's identities um, and in turn, sort of, uh, as we, you know, as we argue, um, had an effect on how people voted, um, you know, as our identities do, so.
0: People call themselves were known as a union man,
1: yeah, right, yeah,
2: yeah. And you know, I, I'll just add that I think, um, a lot of politics is who we are and who they are, and um, the we in the day can change, it, it can even be in some kind of tension for a person. Um, but Democrats weren't some remote presence making a kind of uh, a pitch, um just before the election on a television ad, they were your friends and neighbors, uh, the people that were there with you and that you assumed were on your side in a fight against business. And, um, you know, Lainey did these wonderful interviews and she can talk a little bit about the components that went into the identity of a union man. And they mostly were men, uh, although more recently they've become women too. So we don't, Really mean to uh, say that there are no uh, women, no, uh, that they're all white men either. Some are people of color and always were uh, more recently, but it's a, a way of looking at the world. So maybe because it's the interviews that Laney did that really uh, put us on to this. We, we got beyond the usual polls that people sit around in offices and conduct uh, from afar.
0: Thank God you did this work too, Lainey. Go, go ahead and and share uh, some of the findings from the, from your, uh, the people you interviewed about what a, what is a union person?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Right. So this idea of, of of who the union man was, and I'll use that term just because, you know, historically, I think that it, you know, when I mentioned this, this term to people, it, any, lots of people, you know, whether just in conversation or with interviewees or, or what have you, it triggers a sort of knowledge, intuitive, you know, sort of knowledge. It's this, you know, we know sort of that term from but like what does it really mean um and, and so that's sort of something that we tried to figure out through our interviews and through our archival um data that we looked at. Um, and I think we we settled on three um three different sort of uh themes that that the union man encompasses which is um, mutual commitment, uh historical awareness and occupational pride. Um, and to sort of break each of those down. Um, mutual commitment is this idea of being uh brothers being brothers and sisters with the other members looking out for one another being a collective um putting you know the the union first uh and and um having that be part of uh part of like really who who an individual is that collective identity um historical awareness is is the idea that people were attached to the what unions had done historically and how unions had um, advocated for workers and, and were aware of the advances that unions had achieved. Um, and then occupational pride is, uh, is, you know, love of one's one's craft, one, one's occupation, um, you know, a, a sense of pride in being a steelworker uh, that, you know, works in, in the mill or being um, a bricklayer, being an electrical worker, something that takes a lot of training. Um, and the combination of occupational pride um, and, uh, you know, historical awareness and, and these other and and mutual commitment as well, sort of function to reinforce that union identity, um, because without the union sort of the whole thing, you know, this whole, um, you know, an occupation, like people were always sort of, as Theta was saying, comparing the in group to the out group. And, you know, there was always the fear of scabs taking, you know, your job or, you know, non-union member, non-union people. Um, and so I think that it all, those, these three things were sort of rested upon the, the structure that the union gave to, to workers' lives.
0: Yeah, I can recall because I grew up, as I was saying earlier, in, in a union household. My dad was it was a, a union member in the uh, president, actually, of the local in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, uh, so a lot of this really rang true for me. But uh, what happened? What changed here that started? It's, uh, you know, it's partly economic change, but then had political reverberations that are still with us now.
2: Yeah, we. um um. I would say don't so much disagree with the dominant argument about what happened, which is that uh, a lot of industries just took major blows uh, in the 70s and 80s and after, uh, particularly the steel industry uh, facing uh, international competition and not helped in the same way, for example, that recently the auto industry has been. Um, many steel mills just closed uh, throughout uh, Western Pennsylvania, parts of Ohio, into West Virginia. Uh, that would be even more true of, the, of course, the mines in West Virginia, where my sister lives. So uh, these are these unions uh, f- that were part of the giants in the mid twentieth uh, century lost members, lost dues-paying members, lost uh, workers that they could organize as those big. Uh, globally spurred economic changes occurred. But we think it's more than that because partly because in the, in our research, we looked at still unionized workers in these in these areas. It's I mean, I guess sometimes people think that the uh, steel industry is completely gone, it isn't. And there are still unionized steel plants in, in western Pennsylvania, and those were among the people, along with retirees from the older era that Laney was able to talk to. And we also went back and found things like old surveys that the steelworkers did with their workers, uh, where they're very detailed, not like the usual political polls. Now they ask people about everything under the sun and um, like their community involvements and did they think union leaders should take political stands? And surprisingly, they never did that much. we don't really think that union members ever really just took orders from the international leaders uh, it was much more that they interpreted things uh, according to the reality they were living in their communities and in their plants. So we, we looked at that kind of thing. We also gathered, uh, we found a wonderful pamphlet that laid out where all the union halls were in Western Pennsylvania, and we mapped those because it, there was actually a physical place you could go to to uh, interact with union members, but also maybe hold a wedding or a uh, a graduation party or uh, s- some of those kinds of things. So, we 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 looked at the fact that because the steel industry in particular happened in plant-based towns, um, as many of the mills closed, uh, workers ceased to live close to where they work, even if they're still unionized. So that kind of dense connection into local communities really evaporated more for the steel industry than perhaps for many others. Um and it's that part of it that everybody took for granted in the past that we're putting a, a kind of spotlight on now.
0: You're listening to Heartland Politics on W V-I-K Quad Cities NPR. I'm your host Robin Johnson. And my guests today are co-authors of an important new book. If you're really interested in what's going on politically, and especially in our region of why the working class voters have shifted, to specifically union members, you want to read this. It's a very readable book. It's got some unique findings, unique way of research that was done that I think is very, very credible. It's called Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. And the authors are with me today, Lainey Newman and Theta Scotchpole. Um, I, am going to ask this, uh, somewhat jokingly, but, um, I mean, this theory that voters don't vote working class voters don't vote in their own interests, uh, when they vote Republican, uh, I've always been skeptical of that, but you just, you, you pretty much uh, drive a truck right through it. I mean, it, it, uh, but what, what is this, uh, you know, Republican, this didn't start with Trump, I think, which is a major point you're making, but, uh, what what was behind the cause of as uh, unions declined, Republicans start going over to the uh, uh, union members start voting Republican more. What are the other dynamics involved in that? That's key findings from your work. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, so I think exa- you're exactly right. We 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 disagree with this idea that that people vote against their own interests, and and um, you know we we sort of take issue with that framing, um, and. So, so, one of the things that we look at is uh, um you know what influences people were, you know or what what sort of messages people were hearing um, politically, socially, um in their communities uh, that they were that they're exposed to. Um, now versus in, you know, the mid 20th century at the height of um, big labor. And and so one of the things that I think is really important is that the counterweight to a lot of conservative messaging um, often came from uh, local unions. Um, unions had really, you know, sort of robust uh, information-providing apparatuses, and so they, you know, there there were often local union newsletters, um, you know, magazines from the international union, and often in, in some towns that had, you know, some union-dense towns, um, labor newspapers that were funded by uh, multiple unions in, in the region, and so um, there was a lot of information that people were being provided that had, you know, that was coming from um, from from labor and from workers, and so um, you know, as unions have lost density, as unions have um, lost you know resource uh, resources and and um, power, uh, you know, the ability to sort of um, provide that count that political counterweight to a lot of the conservative influences in you know in um, less urban areas or non major metropolitan cities um, has 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 been significantly sort of um, uh, has significantly declined. Um, and so we I think that what what we think is, um, you know, it's not so much about people voting, you know, not in their own best interest, uh, but rather, you know how people are voting, um, what messages they're receiving and and adhering to um, as opposed to you know getting them
2: because into the vacuum left by the decline, of dense social ties unions ethnic clubs churches tied to all of those and people living close to where they were uh in into this the kind of gaps that were left as that came unraveled and 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 withered at the at at the community level are mega churches and um which are often much more conservative in their messaging uh, and gun clubs now We're not saying that workers in Western Pennsylvania became interested in guns recently. I mean, they've always been interested in guns. And in fact, we went through newsletters of, uh, we went through years and years of union newsletters and they would have parts of them that were about how to get a gun license, how to, how to get trained, where to go hunt. Um, Hunting is part of Recreational life for particularly for men in, uh, in areas like Western Pennsylvania. I did a little bit of field work there to, uh, after the after Trump was elected and uh, met um, met some people that were very proud of their gun culture uh, and their guns. And and um, Western Pennsylvania has a lot of elk hunting, <laughs> so uh, I certainly heard about that it's just that now if you maybe you used to go to the ethnic club or the union hall now people will drive to a gun club and they may hang out there with friends uh and a lot of those gun clubs are linked to the nra or even if they're not they're conveying a very uh, conservative message uh, that's that's often deliberately linked to the republican party but even if it's not deliberate it, it sort of gives rise to to uh, workers putting Second Amendment stickers on their cars and proclaiming that loyalty.
0: Um, Big question that we have, and I think based on your research, you've laid this out pretty well uh, in a unique way, again, as I said, of what's going on and why, is for the Democratic Party, which again, this is the traditional part of their voting base, They they suffered heavy losses in this constituency <laughs> Can they get it back? And if so, how? And I, I'm particularly interested. It seems like their their method is basically, let's just run a lot of TV ads and do some polls. Um, <laughs> what does your research have to say about the best way? Can they get some of these voters back and how?
1: Yeah, well, um, I guess (laughs) we don't think it's as easy as just running TV ads um, or asking for people's vote every four years, um, showing up at election time. Um, And and I think that what we think is a a key takeaway of our research is that, um, you know, this takes a long-term investment um, by Democrats to show up in these places, um, to not sort of abandon folks in non-urban areas, um, to maintain relations with community institutions um, even in non-election years. And so, um, you know, we, I mean, it's, I think, you know, the, the, the work that the Biden administration has done on, you know, on being pro-labor and, and, um, and supportive of unions, uh, th- that type of thing obviously matters, but it's, um, it's more than just that. It's about, you know, also integrating at the community level and at the local level, um, in order to, to sort of rebuild what's been lost, frankly. Um, and I'm sure Theta has other thoughts.
2: It's It comes down to being there and to being there all the time. And, you know, I think a lot of times uh, the national consultants think, oh, well, these a lot of these counties are lost causes. We're not going to get we're not going to win them. Uh, so let's invest elsewhere. And uh, that then in turn leads to an image of the Democratic Party as something uh, in a lot of big cities and a lot of college towns. Um, I, when I did some of my interviewing with conservative people to try to understand the Tea Party and then the Trump phenomenon, people would say to me, you know, they send people here to tell us what to do. Uh, um, and the the way to overcome that is to recognize that there are Democrats everywhere, actually, and uh, uh, help them organize, help them be an ongoing presence in community endeavors of all kind, including things that aren't political. Um and uh, just kind of emphasize an ongoing conversation. It's in a way, it's not rocket science. And I actually think Democrats have been learning this in quite a few key states. Some black Democrats have been doing that in places like Georgia. I think the Wisconsin Democratic Party is doing a very good job of building a, 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 a kind of every county, every, every district uh, presence, neighbor to neighbor. Um, some presidential campaigns have done better at that than others. I mean, Obama's campaign did better at that than Hillary Clinton's. and And I think Joe Biden has as president, made a point of going to, you know, he actually went to Erie a bunch of times. and he won Erie barely, but and and he he did better in in with many blue collar workers across the state of Pennsylvania and that was enough to make the difference so um, this is a lesson that I think Democrats are gradually learning obviously it doesn't come naturally to people who specialize in doing national polls and running big expensive television ads and it's not either or but it is to some degree because you have to invest uh, you have to invest uh, year after year and you have to uh, be in places where you're not going to win. Um, uh, say the local congressional district or the local offices right, right away.
0: Well, and I I think the brand, the democratic brand is, is so bad in in rural areas like where I live working class areas where uh, I I think what you're saying is they're going to have to start at the grassroots level uh, and kind of put a different face on the party than perhaps what the Washington faces. And I think, I think that's a key element of this. You did, you pointed out something in the book, how Clinton lost a lot of these areas badly. Biden did a little better. And the key difference was appearances in those areas, which I thought was very interesting. Right. And notice
2: Trump. You know, I mean, <laughs> Trump uh, holds these rallies in these kind of areas that are beyond the the core metropolitan areas. And uh, people, of course, travel to them as well. But um that gives people the sense that uh, a candidate is at least coming to where they are and understands their perspective. Now, that can be quite fake. I don't really think Donald Trump either understands or cares about uh, what's happening uh, outside of his own head. But um it, it 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 symbol symbolism matters, and then the rest of the party and groups around it take cues from that. So I I think that's important.
0: What one final question we've got about a couple minutes left here. Um, I, I thought it was interesting too that when you talked about uh, recruiting candidates that are, are are you know kind of closer to the area representing the area. Have you seen any evidence of that 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 that's changing any?
2: Um, we didn't systematically look at that in our book, but I would say yes. I mean, look at the Senate candidacy uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, um, why am I forgetting John's name? Um, John Fetterman. Yeah, Fetterman. He he at least comes from the, the Western region, and that surely makes a difference. Um, I think it's fair to say that Democrats have been making an effort to recruit um, people who've who've won school board races and been in, um, in state politics a little bit more recently than they did in the past. And they certainly have been recruiting military candidates. Uh, I think of, I spend part of my summer in in Maine and Jared Golden is, you know, he's a, he's a guy from Northern Maine, which is Trump country. And he's from um, he, he, I think he was a military veteran. So he, he has. He understands the lives of the people that he seeks to represent, and he sometimes votes differently than some of the other Democrats from different places, which is just fine. Uh, everybody doesn't have to operate in lockstep.
0: If I could squeeze one more question in, Lainey, you you had some advice at the end. Uh, Both of you in this book for uh, areas for additional research. What's the top thing you'd like to know that uh, is that came out of this? Like all good studies, it left a lot of other questions. What's in 30 seconds? Is there one particular thing you'd zero in on?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think that we we would like to see more social science research sort of narrow in on um, not only, you know, whether you're in a union or not, but, you know, ask more specific questions about union membership to try to disaggregate what's generally seen as a monolith, which is, you know, the, being a union member. Um, so we ha- you know, one of the things that we struggled with was the data, um, just isn't there for a lot of this and, and trying to understand, um, the differences between different types of unions, different, um, industries, uh, and that type of thing. So we, we'd like to see research, um, that, that does a, does a better job of that.
2: And we'd like to have- see research where you
1: talk to the people involved. Yeah, exactly.
0: I- I will just add that there's some very interesting work done and we didn't have time to get to it in differences between building trades unions and the steelworkers unions, which I think if you wanna know that, buy the book, uh, because I know the building trades are very prominent in the Quad City area as well. The book is Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working-Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. And I'm very grateful to have the authors with me today, uh, Laney Newman and Scotch Scotchball. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
1: Thank honey. you for having us. Yeah.
0: You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK, Quad Cities, NPR.